0: Welcome to Discover. We're glad you joined us today on our podcast. Be sure to check us out online at discovercc.org. Today we continue in a series called God is for You. It's eight ways that Jesus shows that he is for people. And here's our discipleship minister, Jim Breckbuehler. I'm just really excited about what the passage that we're going to talk about this morning. It's 11 verses, but it's got six of the most explosive words in it in the scriptures. And so um, in order for us to really grasp the importance of those six words, we have to set this passage up. Now, in verse 25, where we're starting at today, it says, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And so what happened at that point was the day before Jesus had fed the 5,000, and then he crossed over to the other side, but he didn't take a boat over. There's only one boat, and he hands up on the other side, and they're like, "Okay, how did you do that?" But there are two very intentional miracles that occur before we get to today's discourse. The first one of those is the feeding of the 5,000. Um, the people come to Jesus, they're chasing after him just like they would have if we knew where LeBron James was at or any other rock star. They're everywhere. They're watching his every move. The people come to him, and he's now going to feed all of them. Now, here's the thing. It's 5,000 5, men, but Bible scholars think it's about fifteen to 20,000 if you include the children and the women in there, too. So a massive amount of people, a little boy has five barley loaves and two fish, and Jesus takes that and feeds 15 to 20,000 people out of virtually nothing, but in the end, he has 12 baskets left over. He almost multiplies it times 12. So that is the first major miracle that we see here in the beginning of the chapter, And then the next miracle occurs as he sends his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. And one of the things it's known for is just quick, violent storms. And so he sends them out to go to the other side. And that was late at night. And when we also look at Matthew 14 and Mark 6... We see that they struggled all night long in this storm. They're just rocking back and forth. And so Jesus sees them struggling, and he goes on out to them. They look and they see Jesus, and they are terrified because they think they've seen a ghost. And he says, do not be afraid, it is I. Now in Matthew 14, we know that this is also where Peter says, hey, Jesus, can I walk on the water with you? And he says, yeah, come. And Peter does well for a little bit, and then he starts to sink, and he yells out, Jesus, save me. And so Jesus picks up Peter. They get in the boat. And I think this is just so cool because in the book of John, it says they immediately got to the other shore. I think what happened, Jesus had had such a busy day the day before. He's been up all night praying. Now he's in the boat, and he's like, I'm not into rowing this morning. We're going to get there. Now, here's what we cannot miss. Jesus has just performed two miracles. He has provided bread to the Jewish people in a miraculous way, and he has also had power over the water. And in order to understand this, we have to go back. Um, Jesus has come. He is the second redemption of the Jewish people as well as all people, all of all the Gentiles, all of us. He is going to save the whole world. But there was also the first redemption where God saved the Israelite nation out of slavery. And so there are two miracles that happen then where God shows who he is. The Israelites come out of Egypt. They come up and they are right up against the Red Sea. And now the Egyptian army is coming behind them and they are hemmed in. And God separates the Red Sea and they walk across on dry ground. And then he closes it back in on all of Pharaoh's army that had gone after them. God shows that he has power over water. And then the next thing you see is that they start to grumble and they grumble and grumble. And finally he says, you guys are not going to go into the promised land for 40 years. But for 40 years... He provides bread to them every morning, six days a week, not on the Sabbath. He provides bread for them from heaven. It's a miracle. We can't miss the fact that God had power over the water. He provided bread from heaven. And now Jesus shows us these two miracles where he has power over the water and he has the ability to bring bread down from heaven. So he sets them up. He is now shown that, hey, he's making two declarations with these two miracles, besides all the healing, that I am divine. And so we pick up then at verse 26. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus realizes that what they're chasing after him for is stuff. They want another free meal like they had the day before, where they were all stuffed. And he realizes that's what they're after, but he also realizes a spiritual hunger and he addresses it. Do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, What must we do? to do the works of God, to get this eternal bread. Now, see here, they hear this, and they go, this bread that's eternal. And we're going to talk about bread in a little bit, but this would have been big to them. And they're thinking, hey, if we do the works of God, we're going to get this bread that will be in our pantry, and it will just last and last. This is going to make life much better. All we have to do is do the work that God requires of us. And so they asked Jesus this question, what must we do to do the works God requires? And they're leaning in to hear his answer. And he says, the work of God is this. They're leaning in. And he says, to believe in the one he has sent. For the Jewish people that were all about rituals, this would have been, okay, well, Jesus, that's cool now. But what what else do we need to do? And all he says is, To believe in the one he has sent. And in the Greek, this believe is an ongoing lifetime of having faith. So now then we come to a part that's almost, it's just sadly comical. So they ask him, what sign will you give me? We may see it and believe you. What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know, it's amazing. He's got to be scratching his head. He's been healing people for weeks and months. All they have to do is touch his cloak and they're healed. He just fed 15 to 20,000 of them yesterday. He calms the sea and they're asking him, hey, can you give us a sign that you're the real deal? So he doesn't even answer the question, he just goes right on. He says, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, they even, I think, thought that it wasn't God that gave them the bread, it was Moses. And he's saying, The bread that comes down then was from God. The bread that's coming down now from heaven is me, and I've been sent by God. So once again, they lean in and ask this question. They say, sir, always give us this bread. They've had the healing. He's done all this stuff for them, and now they want more. And it's so easy to be critical of the Jewish people, but I think we can be like that too. We can come to Jesus, we can give our lives to him, but yet we still want more from him. He's kind of like our genie, our ATM. Lord, I know you saved me, but my marriage is in trouble and I want you to fix it. And you're not, so what's going on? Lord, I have cancer, what, why is this happening to me? I shouldn't have cancer, I gave my life to you, we fix it. Jesus says that he is going to sustain us through our problems. Yes, he will at times cure us. He will help us with our problems. But what he ultimately came for was to save us from our sin. And so we go on, and so they say, always give us this bread. And this is what Jesus says. He says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. I'm going to deal with verse 36 real quick because they still have unbelief. I drew the good straw. I have the positive sermon. Steve's going to have to deal with the unbelief next week. All right. So we're done with verse 36. So he says, I am the bread of life. This is the first two words of an explosive statement. Keep in mind that he has just shown that he has power over the water. He can bring bread down like the manna that they saw back in the day of captivity. And now he says, I am. And in order for us to understand how that strikes the Jewish people listening, we have to go back into Exodus, into the third chapter. Moses is out in the the pasture. He's at Mount Orb and he is feeding the sheep. And all of a sudden now he sees a burning bush, but the burning bush. The bush is not burning up. It just has flames coming out of it. It's like, I'm going to go check this out. And as he walks up to it, the Lord speaks to him. and says, Moses, take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. You are on holy ground. You see, when people took off their sandals, that was a sign that they were a servant. And then God went ahead and instructed him that I have heard the cries of my people down in Egypt and I'm going to have you, Moses, bring them out. And so Moses asked a very logical question because now he's going to go down there. He's not seen these people and he's going to go down and say, hey, I'm here and I've been sent to get you out. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. Now what we have to keep in mind is these two words are so powerful, I am. One of the things we need to realize about God is, and it seems obvious and we would say we believe it or we know it, but we can forget it, is that he is self-existent. Dr. Jack Cotter writes, God derives his existence from himself and not from any outside source. His being is not derived from anything and is not dependent on anything. He just exists. He is self-sufficient, immortal, indestructible, and independent. He cannot die. He cannot disappear. He cannot self-destruct. All this is in sharp contrast with all the beings created, which by the very fact of creation owes its existence to something outside of itself, namely the Creator God. Thus, all created beings are contingent, where God's existence is necessary. In other words, we depend on God. God does not depend on anything. He goes on to write, the biblical teaching about God's self-existence begins with this self-revealed name in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Here God tells us the basic fact about Himself that He is the one who is. He goes on to write, the critical importance about God's self-existence is expressed in Isaiah 43, 12 through 13, and I am God, even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. In verse 15, it tells us that he told Moses, he goes, this will be the name of that I'm taking for generations to come. He's basically saying to Moses, you just tell him that I am sent you, the God that has existed forever. So now we go back to Jesus. And by the way, I meant to note this. This is the first of the seven I am statements. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And the last one is, I am the true vine. We will unpack the last six in a sermon series this summer. But when Jesus says to the Jewish people, I am, they're hearing him say that I am self-existent. I am God in the flesh. And so this would have been a massive statement to these people. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Now remember, we need to listen with the ears and eyes of 2,000 years ago in the ancient world. Today, bread for us is usually just a side dish. We may not even have it at a meal. But for them in the ancient world, bread was the meal. It was the center course. If you were poor, you had water and you had bread. So when they heard this, they heard, I am self-existent, I am divine, and I want to be and I expect to be the center of your life. I am the main course of your life. And then he goes on to answer one of the biggest questions that people struggle with, and that is contentment. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He's not talking about physical thirst or physical hunger, he's talking about soul hunger. And so many people hunger their soul hungers, and, and they constantly look to their 401k plan or the house that they have or their children or their spouse or who they're dating or their academics or their athletics or you fill in the blank. And they keep pouring themselves into it. I've been guilty of this. I still am at times. You pour yourself into things, and you're still hungry for more. And Jesus is saying, That if I am the center piece of your life, if I am the main course, then you will find soul contentment. So what are the four takeaways from this very quickly? First of all, we serve a very big Jesus. We realize Jesus was God in the flesh and that he may have been 5'7", or he may have been 5'9". He may have been six four, but now he was shrinking down to six three. All right. I don't know what size your Jesus is, but that's the physical Jesus. But the 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 Jesus, the, the spiritual being, you can't even describe him. But Paul tried to do it in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He says the Son is the image of the invisible God. If we see Jesus, we see God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. You listen to all the the nastiness on both sides of the aisle in Washington, D.C., and they think they're so big, and they were all created by Jesus. That might be a question we want to ask him someday. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do we think about that Jesus holds everything together? And he is the head of the body, the church. A lot of times you'll hear people say, I I like Jesus, I'm just not that big of a fan of the church. This big Jesus is the head of the church. And when we say, I love you, Jesus, or I like you, Jesus, but I'm not a fan of the church, it's like going to a wedding and saying to the groom, you look so handsome in your tux, but your bride's ugly. Because the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. He is the beginning and the firstborn among all dead, so that in everything, he might have supremacy. We can never lose the awe and the wonder. Of Jesus, the second thing is we have to build everything around Jesus. He is our firm foundation. We're singing about this this morning. He's got to be at the center of our marriage, at the center of our dating, at the center of our occupation, in the center of our academics. He's got to be at the center of even when we play. We often talk in when we're when we're when we're talking with premarital and premarital situations counseling or even marital uh, counseling. We talk about a triangle. And Jesus is right here, and the two spouses are over here, future spouses, and that if they are both moving towards Jesus, if they are going to have a marriage centered on Jesus, then they will grow closer to each other. Because see, when we love like Jesus does, it makes everything better. If Jesus is at the center of our parenting and he is here and parents are here and kids are here, the more we bring the whole family towards Jesus and let him work on us and we learn everything about him and want to be just like him, the closer parents will grow to their kids and the closer their kids will walk with the Lord. Jesus has got to be the firm foundation of everything that we do. The third thing is we need to bring our burdens to him all of us who are weary, and I'm friends, I know a lot of you, and I've walked with you for years, I know that you struggle with past relationship ramifications, some of you have lost loved ones before their time, maybe a parent early or a child or whatever it may be. There are the current daily stressors, whether they are health issues or maybe your bills are piling up, the banks coming after your house, your marriage is in trouble, whatever it might be, you're having trouble with your kids, but you've got all these daily stressors. Maybe one of the biggest burdens that you carry is guilt from the past. That's not the way Jesus wants you to live. I love Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. He, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble. Jesus says, hey, come to me if you're tired. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We've been saying over and over again about how God is for us. We have a Jesus that is saying, I'm for you. Bring your burdens to me. I'll carry them. I'll help you carry them. But don't walk a life of being burdened down. As far as guilt things go, because so many people deal with this, I love Psalm 103, 11, and 12 because it says something. It puts it in great perspective. It says, for as high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, we're not talking Portland, Maine, and L.A. We're talking as far as the horizon goes on out into eternity from east is to the west. He has removed our sins from us. When we become a Christian, when we begin, when we give our life to him, all sins from the first one we committed to the last one we do before we die have all been punished. And Jesus has taken that punishment on the cross and he doesn't see those anymore. The last takeaway is this. God is for us. We have a savior that loves us so much. But he also commands us to take our love to those around us. We can't hoard that love. He states it very clearly in John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he adds a sentence. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is saying, I want you to take this love to the people around you. And this love has got to go out. The only way people will know we are his disciples is if we love. C.S. Lewis wrote, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gas, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on him.